Our text this morning is Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, and um, I'd like to ask the Lord's blessing upon the reading and hearing of God's Word. Let's pray. Lord God, we are reminded in this season of Advent of our need for light. We need to be illuminated as the people of God, and you are the God who opens eyes and ears and hearts to you. So do that with us, those who are new to you, and those who have followed many years. Make us receptive to see and to hear and to internalize what you have to say to us this morning through your word and by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And as I read this text, I also want you to be attentive to reading between the lines of the text. Uh, certainly, we rely upon the very Word of God, but there are things that go on in between. And much of the Christian life, honestly, is living in between the text of Scripture, trying to figure out how things apply and what they mean in our lives. So as you listen to this, uh, hear it and, and think about what is being said and what happened here in this extraordinary moment in history. Matthew 1 Verses 18 to 25. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had re re resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son, and he named him Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you ever been in a dilemma? Ever faced a dilemma? The Google definition for a, a um, dilemma is a situation in which a difficult choice has to be made between two or more alternatives, especially equally undesirable ones. Have you ever been there, been in that type of situation? Maybe you're there right now this morning, something going on in your life where you feel like you're between a rock and a hard place, where you feel as though you are betwixt and between two good options or maybe two equally bad options, and a choice has to be made. I think all of us are there at some point in our life and have engaged with the dilemmas and trying to figure out what to do, and we're likely to be there again. I've been there numerous times in my life as I was preparing this sermon. A variety of occasions where I encountered dilemmas came to my mind. A lot of them had to do with big life decisions. I thought of the time when I moved from Beaver Falls and up, up back to Rochester and the dilemma of leaving 
the church there and coming here and making that choice. I thought about other times when I made choices about job situations, taking a new job, leaving a current job. Even as I was called to this church, I faced a dilemma. You know, I had the situation where I knew I would be letting somebody down, someone I cared about a great deal, but then I also had this calling of the Lord, and so I was in this dilemma having to choose, and I'm guessing you have been there too. And sometimes I look back on those things in retrospect, and I think, did I make the right choices? Did I choose wisely? Did I make them for the right reasons? Did I rely solely on myself? Or did I really truly seek the Lord? Do I even know what my motivations were? Can I even know that about myself? There's a a mist, a kind of a vagary around all of those decisions and choices we make when we're in the midst of a dilemma. How about you? How have you done? You look back and grade yourself on the choices you've made when you were faced with a dilemma, with two choices, and you had to pick one. How well have you done in that? How are you doing right now with whatever you're facing? Well, in many ways, the advent of our Lord was a dilemma-sparking event. It created a dilemma for all of humanity in one regard, this universal dilemma, But in another way, it created a very narrow, particular dilemma for one man, one person, a man named Joseph. A dilemma that Holy Scripture gives us very explicitly here in the text that we read, so that we could reflect upon it and contemplate it. It's there for a reason, Joseph's Dilemma. That's the title of the sermon. And this morning, I want to reflect on that. To reflect on Joseph's dilemma. And I'll do that. You three things that I really want you to see about that. This is how we'll organize the sermon. First, I want to look at the anatomy of Joseph's dilemma. What was the nature of it? And secondly, I want to look at the resolution of Joseph's dilemma. How did it get resolved? And then thirdly and finally, I want to look at the lessons of Joseph's dilemma. What can we learn from this text? To apply in our own lives and the dilemmas that we face. What can we learn about ourselves and about our God? So the anatomy, the resolution, and the lessons of Joseph's dilemma. Let's begin by looking at the anatomy of Joseph's dilemma. What was going on here? Well, the basic elements of the dilemma are right there, right? They hit us right in the, in the face. They're immediately presented to us in the opening verse, in verse 18 of the text. Now, the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place in this way when his mother, Mary, had been engaged to Joseph. But before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Those are the facts that lead to Joseph's dilemma. And the basic facts are these. There's really two main facts here. The first fact is that Joseph and Mary were engaged. That's what the New Revised Standard Version says. It's not a great translation because it connects to what we think about engagement. We think about engagement involving, you know, giving a ring. It's kind of like, it's not really any type of commitment there. If it doesn't, you know, go forward, you might get the ring back. Uh, But, uh, you know, that's probably the only thing at stake. But the facts of this situation was that Joseph and Mary were betrothed to one another, which was a contractual relationship, a relationship that had a lot of implications and ramifications. 
If a woman were to die while she's being betrothed to someone, she would be considered a widow. And to end a betrothal would require a divorce. So this is something much more serious. These two are committed. They are on their way to marriage. This is a year-long pledge in their lives, a pledge that involves them living apart but being sexually abstinent, that they are going to fulfill this contract to one another. That's one fact we need to know about this dilemma. Joseph and Mary are betrothed. Fact number two is that Mary was found to be with child. That's an important fact, right? In this dilemma, she was pregnant. And this was problematic for Joseph for obvious reasons, right? We know, and he knew, that he was not the father of this child. So how did he find out about that? Well, we're not really told in Scripture, but we could probably safely assume that Mary advised him, told him about this, and then told him the whole story about what the angel had revealed to her. So those are the two basic facts. He's betrothed to Mary, and Mary's got a child, and he's not the father. So if you think about the whole situation, she's telling him this one big whopper of a story, right? It's a pretty one hard to believe. Would you believe it? So the first real dilemma that he faces, the most immediate dilemma he has, is will he believe Mary or not? If we assume she told him this, and he has to make a decision about this, will he believe this woman or not? Will he believe her story? And from the text, although it's not made explicit, we can assume by what happens next, he didn't believe her. Now again, can you blame him? Would you have believed her? So that's his initial dilemma. His first dilemma is whether to believe her or not, but that leads to a deeper dilemma. He just chooses not to believe her, so now he finds himself in the facing another dilemma, one that goes a little bit deeper. What is that dilemma? Well, what's he going to do about it? In his mind, she has broken the contract of betrothal by doing this, right? She has not remained faithful to the contract, so what's he going to do? And he faces this dilemma. He has two undesirable options, a classic dilemma. What were those options? Well, first, he could divorce Mary publicly, right? So this is a patrol that requires a divorce to end it. She's broken the contract. He could divorce her publicly. Now, this could result in Mary being subject to being stoned by the community. It could result in her dying. It's certainly going to result in her being shamed and disgraced, probably destitute. Hard for her ever to get married again with this upon her, this kind of public shaming. For Mary, it's all downside, perhaps even to the extent of her life. But Joseph, he's got it pretty good if he does this, if he chooses this option. There's actually some upside for him because he would be viewed as being righteous. He will have followed the course of justice. He would have followed the law. We are told in the text that Joseph was a righteous man. He cared about the law. He kept the law. And if he did this, the public would look at him as saying, look at righteous Joseph, giving justice, following the law, doing what you're supposed to do in this situation. So there's really upside for him. He's viewed heroically in this and sympathetically if he chooses this option. So maybe not so bad for him. That's option number one. He divorces her publicly. The other option is he does it in secret. 
He divorces her privately. Now again, for Mary, this is still a bad deal. She'll still have a level of shame. She'll still be, this will get out. She'll be known. This is going to make her um, you know, undesirable for marriage. But for Joseph, there's clearly less upside in this. He'll gain none of those reputational benefits. In fact, he may actually face a downside in this because people might look at him and say, you didn't do what you were supposed to do. He might even be considered a liberal. Right? Going soft on sexual sin, huh, Joseph? How would that go over at the synagogue, right? So he really faces perhaps a downside on this issue if he chooses that one. So two options, divorce her publicly, divorce her privately. So he's got this dilemma. And really one is a justice option. The other one is a mercy option, if you will think of it that way. And that's really the essence of Joseph's dilemma. The public option, the private option, that's the anatomy. That's the nature of his dilemma. What will he do? So now let's go on to the second point, the resolution of Joseph's dilemma. How does he solve the problem? Well, the text makes that explicit as well. Verse 19, this is the resolution of Joseph's dilemma. Verse 19, her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly, planned to divorce her quietly. So Joseph chose option number two, the private divorce, divorce Mary in secret. He chose the mercy option out of the two, and that part's rare, really kind of cut and dry in the text, right? It's very clear, very explicit in the text. But you might miss, if you don't read between the lines a little bit or read deeper into the text, you might think that he made that decision easily. It happens right after, right? Next verse, boom, there he is. He's making this decision. But you would be wrong. There was a lot of deliberation, a lot of wrestling, a lot of contemplation. Joseph struggled, a serious struggle with this. This was not made willy-nilly or off the cuff. And how do I know that? Well, as the Bible song goes, because the Bible tells me so. Where is that? Well, we see the depth of Joseph's struggle, his deliberation, his contemplation in two places, two words. In verse 19, it says that Joseph planned to dismiss her quietly. And then the second word is in verse 20, that Joseph resolved to do this, that is to divorce her in secret. Those two words, planned and resolved, are words that imply, that mean, that carry the connotation that, that this is something deliberative, contemplative, that he had spent a lot of time thinking about it, wrestling with it. So the text tells us that Joseph really considered this. Just like us, he wrestled with what to do, what choice to make. What it doesn't tell us, though, what the text doesn't tell us is, how did he feel about it? What was going through his head at this time? What were his emotions? This is where, you know, it takes a little sanctified imagination to kind of look between the lines of the text. But what was going on? I mean, if I, when I get to heaven, uh, I, I like to ask Joseph about this. Kind of go up to him and nudge him. You were kind of ticked off, right? I mean, this is like, what was in his head? We know he was wrestling, but what was he feeling? 
I mean, one option was that he was chagrined, right? That he was disappointed or vexed or angry. In, in uh, Eugene Peterson's translation, the message, he translates verse 19, Joseph chagrined, but noble, determined to take care of things quietly. Maybe he was kind of mad. You could see that. Maybe he was filled with anxiety. Maybe he was anxious. Hey, James, if you put up that first slide, which should be a piece of artwork. Yeah, so this is uh, a, a work by a 19th century French artist, James Tissot, Tissot, I should say. Uh, and he tried to capture Joseph's anxiety. The painting is entitled The Anxiety of Joseph. It hangs in the Brooklyn Museum. So maybe Ed and Wilma have seen this on a trip, but this is uh, this effort of trying to portray the anxiety of Joseph. Pensive, thinking this over. Greg uh, Kandra has a wonderful devotion about this, uh, entitled Do Not Be Afraid, where he, he writes about this piece of art. He says, we tend to think of Joseph the way we see him in the manger scene outside our church or on the cards we send or pageants that are staged. He is strong and stoic, patient, righteous, as Matthew describes him. But Tissot understood that the man betrothed to Mary was a man of worries and apprehension and even fear. This morning, I'd like to suggest that Joseph is also a man who speaks to our time, Kondra writes. He says he's a man for our age, an age of anxiety. Joseph's anxiety. Was he anxious? You can go take that slide down. So was he chagrined? Was he anxious? Or was he experiencing cognitive dissonance? You know what cognitive dissonance is? It's when you are uh, experiencing or contradictory information in your brain. It's hard for you to put these two things together. Was he facing that? You know, he knew who this woman was. He wanted to marry her. He obviously uh, thought of her as righteous, and yet she's telling him this story. How do I make all sense of this? And was he going through that and wrestling in his mind? He struggled. He spent time. He deliberated. What was happening? The cauldron of that decision-making process, chagrined, anxious, cognitive dissonance. I mean, I don't know about you, but I can totally identify with Joseph in this. This is exactly how I resolve dilemmas in my life. I plan. I resolve. I go right into my brain. I start thinking about the options, the possible flowchart of consequences to my decision-making. And in that process, often I am chagrined. Often I do experience a level of anxiety and a level of cognitive dissonance. I get him. Do you get him? What he must have been feeling. What you feel in the face of a dilemma. So Joseph resolves his dilemma by planning by resolving it, he decides to divorce her in secret. But of course, you know that's not really how it got resolved, right? He did all that stuff. He spent a lot of time, he, a lot of anxiety, a lot of time thinking about it. But we all know what really happened, how the resolution came. God intervened in the situation. God ultimately resolved that the angel of the Lord came to Joseph, said, don't go through with the divorce, don't do this, but rather take Mary as your wife. 
have name the baby Jesus. That's how it ultimately gets resolved. God intervenes, shows him a better resolution. That's how it gets resolved ultimately. So now comes the question, what do we learn from this? We looked at the anatomy of it. We looked at the resolution of it, what Joseph did and what God did. Now, what about the lessons? Let me give you three lessons, three points of application. What is, can we learn from this text for us in our own dilemmas? And some of it will be reading between the lines, and I'll note when I'm engaging in some level of conjecture, you can weigh it for yourself. I think lesson number one is don't forget God. Don't forget God. As we just noted, Joseph responded to his dilemma by planning and by resolving. That's how he solved this. And that's usually, as I've talked about, my methodology too, right? The plan to resolve, fix the problem, solve the puzzle. But do you see what is missing in his methodology? What's missing? God. There's nothing in the text that says Joseph sought the Lord about this matter. Now, of course, that doesn't mean he didn't, right? So this is where I have to be cautious. This is a level of conjecture because maybe he did. And we're just not told about it, but I have to operate on what I'm told in Scripture. And so it's not there. It's possible it was. But Joseph didn't take this to God as far as we know. All we know for sure is that he planned, resolved, and then God intervened. It says in the text, verse 20, but just when he... Just when Joseph resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. When I read that text, I almost imagine as if God is there immediately watching for that very moment when Joseph is done with all of his planning and resolving and comes to this decision, and then God jumps right in. But just when, the text says, but just when he resolved to do this, God sent an angel. I don't know why God did it that way. Maybe he was waiting for Joseph to come for it to him. I don't know why it happened that way, but that's the way it happened. And it leads me to wonder, and this is conjecture, what would have happened if Joseph had sought the Lord? Could he have saved himself all that anxiety and chagrin and cognitive dissonance? Uh, I don't know. It's all speculative, but I can tell you it's true in my case. I know that when I forget God in the process, I only heighten my cognitive dissonance and my chagrin and most of all my anxiety. How about you? You get a problem, you get a dilemma, and you immediately go into that internalization of solving it on your own. You forget to seek God. And it's good for us to plan and to resolve. God wants us to use our brains. And even anxiety can be good. There's a good part of anxiety. We feel it for a reason. But what I want to encourage you to do this morning is when you are in the midst of a dilemma, don't forget to seek God. Go to Him. Go to Him first. 
In my own life, when I have sought the Lord, I have made better decisions. That all of them have been perfect. There's no guarantee, right? It isn't going to happen like it happened here. God might not send you an angel to tell you how to fix things. I make a lot better decisions when I seek the Lord. I've been watching the Beatles special there on, on Disney Plus. Get back, it's this, I don't know, 25 hours of crazy, it's crazy long, but it's this kind of this wonderful documentary about the Beatles. And you watch these people together. And I think about Lennon and McCartney, right? I think about these two people, and you can see this dynamic there as they're riffing off of one another in this moment, right? They were better together clearly than they ever were separate, right? Their solo careers, let's just face it, okay? They never got there uh, at all. Got a little preview there, didn't you? <laughs> the, uh... But it made me think about our relationship with God. Now, I'm not putting us on parody with God like Lennon and McCartney are, but there's a certain part that we are better when we are talking with God, when we are together with God, when we are collaborating with God, when we are seeking God, when we are praying to God, when we are looking to Him for wisdom in the midst of our dilemmas. So when you're there, and if you're there now, don't forget to seek God. Go to Him. Go to Him first. Lesson number one, don't forget God. Lesson number two is be honest with God. Be honest with God. Now, this doesn't necessarily flow directly from the text, for sure, but it could be an implication of the text. It's certainly an implication of the prior point. If you go to God, if you don't forget Him, if you seek Him in prayer, when you go to Him, be honest with Him. Be honest with Him about your feelings, about Him, about the situation, about yourself, about the dilemma you are in, about your own motivations, your need for him to help you to see and to think and decide clearly. Because sometimes in the midst of a dilemma, what we do is we close down, right? We almost become less open with God and with others. It happens to us. It happens in a lot of relationships. It's a weird thing we do. At the times when we would be helped by being honest, we're often fearful about what other people might think. And so, and even true of with God, we, so we don't open up, we close down. How many times has a dilemma played out, right? Somebody makes a bad choice, a loved one of yours or whatever, and you find out about it and you, you go to them and you say, why didn't you just come to me? Why didn't you tell me what you were dealing with, what you were going through? Well, why don't people do that? Because they're afraid. They're, they have a, a fear about trust, right? Can, can I really be this open with someone? Is it going to hurt me? Is it going to cause me a problem? And often that leads us into making bad decisions because we're all there isolated on our own. And sometimes we do that with God. We just fail to be honest with Him because we're a little afraid. Or maybe we're mad at Him. Or maybe we, you know, it's crazy because He's omniscient, right? He knows it all. But we still do it. I mean, I know because I do Maybe that's what happened in Joseph's case. Maybe he couldn't see, all he could see were these two options, and he couldn't see a way through, and he was like, oh, this whole thing's a big mess, and it's a scandal on my perfect righteous reputation, and maybe he just was afraid to do that. And he couldn't see a way through because of that. 
right? It blinded him. He could only see two options. That's where he was. But something else was out there, right? God showed him a third one. And if he had been honest, would God have showed him that? So not only don't forget God, but when you go to God, be honest with God, be direct. And if I could say it this morning, be Dutch. This is where I'm going to get fired. Did you know that the Dutch have a reputation for being very direct, forthright? I never encountered this myself, by the way. This is just something I've read on the internet. I checked out this website of a Dutch university, and they wrote to, you know, they're writing for people who are interested in attending there, and they're trying to explain the culture. And said, this is, this is quoting right from the website, Dutch people do not beat around the bush and will often speak their minds. It is said it is considered as being honest, where being too subtle and polite can create misunderstanding. This is where you can show that slide up there. This is a, I found this nutritional information about Dutch people. You can see the thing there about their different qualities. You can see directness, 2,000%. I got this from a Dutch guy, so it's okay. Thank you, Peter, by the way, if you're watching. Hey, you can take that down. I'm having a little fun with you. I can tell you Italian jokes, too, if you want me to, but I hope I don't get fired. But I like this about Dutch people. I like their directness, and I think that's what God wants us to be in front of him. Honest. Honest about our hurts, our anxieties, our fears, our dilemmas. Honest about what we see as our options. Praying to him to show us a different way, another way through. In the midst of a dilemma, be honest with God. The third lesson is this, the last one, is don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Verse 20, but just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. In that verse, we do get a little bit of Joseph's emotional state, don't we? We know a little bit what was going on. He was afraid. He was afraid to take Mary as his wife, and we can understand why. It would impact his, his reputation. It would be an act of unrighteousness to marry her under the law, after what she had done, at least in his mind, what he thought she had done. So he was afraid to do it, and he cared about the law, and he believed he was, this is the way of salvation, keep the law. And so to do this would violate the law, would make him a sinner, unrighteous in the eyes of God. It could put his whole salvation in jeopardy, at least as how he thought of it. And so this really gets us to Joseph's true dilemma. You see, this text is like an onion. You peel back the layers of the dilemmas Joseph faced, and here is the one he really was facing, the one he was not even aware of that most of us aren't aware of. His dilemma wasn't whether to believe Mary or not. That wasn't his ultimate dilemma. His ultimate dilemma wasn't even whether to divorce Mary publicly or privately. His real dilemma was he thought he was righteous by keeping the law when he was truly a sinner in need of a Savior. And he didn't even know it. And that's the fundamental human dilemma. We're in a dilemma we're not even aware of. We think we're righteous on our own. When we need a Savior. And so what does God do? He preaches 
the gospel to Joseph. He preaches the good news to Joseph in this text. He tells Joseph about Jesus. He comes to him and says to him, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Joseph was one of those people. Joseph, you're not going to be saved by keeping this law. This is salvation. He came to save his people from their sins. Joseph, one of those people. You and I, we're one of those people. Jesus came to save. Anyone watching this at home? You are the, one of those people that Jesus came to save. That's what jo God showed Joseph in that dream. He showed him Jesus. He showed him the way through his dilemma. How to resolve the ultimate dilemma. You embrace Jesus Christ. You embrace him. And Joseph did. Verse 24, when Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but he had no marital relations with her until she had born a son, and he named him Jesus. And that very act of naming him Jesus, Joseph's act of naming Jesus, Jesus, that was an act of his adopting Jesus. You ever thought of Jesus being adopted? Joseph is Jesus' adoptive father. And when he named him Jesus, Joseph was saying, He is mine, my son, my child. I will own this. And as an adoptive father myself, I feel it. I know that. Mine. I will love you. You will be mine. My child. But when Joseph did that, he wasn't just adopting a child. He was embracing a Savior. I will name him Jesus, for he will save me from my sins. That's what he felt when he woke from that dream. His true dilemma being in resolve. Let me close with this. It's a quote from Susan Andrews, who was relying on the scholarship of Walter Brueggemann. She wrote this. All the dreams in Scripture have something in common. They represent the intrusion of God into a settled world, an unbidden communication in the dark of the night that opens sleepers to a world different from the one they inhabit during the day. An intrusion that generates a restless uneasiness with the way things are until the vision and dream come to fruition. Jacob woke from his dream as a, as a restless wrestler, but was blessed in the end. Old Testament Joseph woke from his dream and saved his people. The Magi woke from their dream and went home another way. In this text, New Testament Joseph wakes from his dream and embraces the Savior of the world. That's what Advent is about. It's a weary world waking from its slumber, coming out of its dream state, and recognizing that salvation resides in Jesus Christ. And in Advent, you have the opportunity to embrace Jesus as your Lord. For He came to save you and me from our sins. Praise be to God. Let us pray.
Oh, Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the good news of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the coming of our Lord. We rejoice in his return. Lord, help us each and every day to embrace this Savior, to recognize that salvation is found in him, that he has resolved the greatest of human dilemmas. He has made those who are unrighteous righteous. He is both just and justifier. Praise be to Christ. And I pray, O oh God, if there's someone hearing this sermon who has not embraced that Christ, that he or she, whether they're here in this place or at home or listening to this months from now, that they will know the joy of what it is to know Christ and to embrace him. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.